Welcome to the Possibility Podcast. This is session one, talking the science of climate change with renowned Canadian climatologist, geographer, and political scientist, Professor Gordon McBain. My name is Sarah Knight, and I'm a possibility seeker. I always have been. I think I was just born on the right side of the bed. And it's always been really easy for me to see the positive side of most things, to see all possibilities and aim for the highest one most of the time. And so I find it increasingly unsettling that what I'm noticing more and more in myself are feelings of dread and negativity when I look out at the world and what's happening in our environment. And as both a healer and a science communicator, it is my job to try to know, to try to understand the science of our environment and our climate, and also to try to feel what that feels like. And that's where the dread comes up. It's where the trauma comes up, and it's where I start to shut down. But What science is telling us is that shutting down is no longer an option if we want to aim for the highest possibility. We can no longer ignore what is going on. Change has happened and it's going to continue to happen and there is nothing that we can do about that. There's lots we can do to help mitigate against any additional change and there's lots that we can do to prepare ourselves for the change that we have already put in place. But in order to take action, we need to be aware of what it is that we're taking action on. We need to be willing to face the challenge and we need to be prepared to move into it. And so that's what I'm trying to do. And so after a few years of trying to face the reality, to stay engaged, finding myself shutting down and turning off, feeling like the problems are too enormous, feeling overwhelmed, which is not something that I'm used to feeling, I decided to embark upon a project. And that's what this project is all about. Possibility, the highest possibility, given the reality of what is happening in the world. And it is a reality. That doesn't mean that there are only two possibilities. That we carry on living as we are until we completely implode. Or we totally change the way that we live, give up all of the resources that we have gained since the start of the Industrial Revolution and go back to living in a way that we lived before technology, before modern comforts. It doesn't mean that we have to give up all of our resources. So what does it mean? And That's what I don't know. But what I do know is that surely there are more than two possibilities. And that's what I'm on a mission to find out. And I think I'm in a pretty good place to explore this. I spent a few years in research as a PhD student studying the oceans. I spent many years working in the area of environmental communication and education and still continue to do that work. And I've moved more recently in the last few years into the area of health and healing. And I work with people to help them move through their traumas, reconnect to themselves, to each other, and to the environment. And so at the heart of this mission is really that. It's a project of reconnection. 
And I think that there is a great possibility here. And more and more often I talk to people who want just that, who are longing for something different. And I see in this crisis that we're facing a message that maybe where we have gone is to a state of disconnection that is no longer for our highest good, but we are so stuck in it. It's so hard to see how there could be any other way. But there is always another way. And so today, the Possibility Project begins. And it begins where I feel it should begin. And that's with facing the facts. And so I've had the very good fortune of recently catching up with Professor Gordon McBain. Gordon is a Canadian climatologist with international renown. He's a physicist, meteorologist, and oceanographer by training, although he's also a professor emeritus with the Departments of Geography and Political Science at the University of Western Ontario. So he really is a very holistically minded man. He's had a long and extensive career in a wide variety of climate-related areas in both academic and government settings. And he's been a long-standing contributor to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. He's received high-level awards for his achievements and leadership. Currently, he's the Director of Policy Studies with the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction, the President for the International Council for Science, and the Co-Chair of the Governing Council for the Future Earth Research Program. So really, this man is the best man to give us the lowdown on what is the state of climate change. And that's exactly where I started off my conversation with him. Here's what he had to say. Well, the climate is certainly warming. And as the top scientists in the world have said, that warming is, first of all, happening. And secondly, it is very, very largely due to the activities of humans and adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. The amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is now passed for the first time in well, in measured history, 400 parts per million. We used to be at 320. We used to be at 280 before that. Uh, we have, a, for the first time, passed one degree Celsius warming since the 1850s when the Industrial Revolution started the emission of greenhouse gases. So we're seeing a very much warming climate due to the increased amount of carbon dioxide and, to a lesser extent, methane in the atmosphere. And this is of concern. Now, 400 ppm is a big number. As Gordon said, prior to the Industrial Revolution, it was about 280. And the scientific community are all pretty clear that 350 is where we should be to sustain life on this planet. Although 400 ppm, that's parts per million, may not sound like a lot, from the balance of an atmospheric composition point of view, it is significant. When I was studying oceanography as an undergrad more than 20 years ago, 400 ppm was a number that we really wanted to avoid. It meant fundamental changes to global temperatures, sea levels, to Arctic and Antarctic ice content. So we're already at this number. We're already seeing a lot of changes. So what does this mean? Is there any point on mitigating against additional carbon going into the atmosphere? Or should we be putting our energies into adapting to the changes that are happening and that are going to be happening with increasing frequency? And Gordon had a thoughtful answer. Well, I think we have to do both. We have to recognize that there is very different timescales in the benefits of what we're doing. 
but we have to start reducing our greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere uh, in order to prevent an even further escalating climate warming, not one degree, but two, three, four, five, even six degrees Celsius warming by the end of this century. Uh, and that, as I say, for, it's for ourselves, but most importantly for our children and grandchildren and all the next generations around the world. So we have to work on mitigation to reduce the overall impact, recognizing that it takes decades to see the benefits. And that's what is trouble for the politicians. Uh, but at the same time, we have to accept the reality that for the next 50 years, climate warming is already embedded in due to the, let's say, the insults we've done to the climate system over the last 150 years. And so we have to adapt to that reality and make ourselves less vulnerable, less exposed, more resilient. And where there are any positive benefits, quite frankly, take advantage of them. We've got to work on these things together. And it's a, not just a, an environmental issue, as some people rant on about. It's really a, a, an economic, social, cultural, fully broad issue. Now, you heard him say there that the carbon that we've put into the atmosphere since the start of the Industrial Revolution is going to cause a change that's already embedded. What he means is that even if we stop today full stop emitting any more carbon into the atmosphere, we have already, because of our activities, created change that we are going to see for the next 50 years, regardless of what we do in this exact moment. So why is that? Well, when carbon dioxide goes into the atmosphere, it hangs around for a long time. Most of it eventually dissolves in the ocean, but that takes about 20 to 200 years. And by the way, that is causing its own problem, ocean acidification, the increasing acidity levels of the ocean, which is a conversation for another time. The remainder of it hangs around for even longer as it gets brought into various geological cycles. Now, that doesn't mean that today does not matter. Come 50 years time, what we do today will matter greatly. But it was our parents and grandparents who emitted the stuff that is affecting us today. And it is what we do today that will impact our children. So as our conversation carried on, Gordon said something next that really caught my breath. Interestingly, the World Economic Forum puts out a global risk assessment every year. This year, 2000, well, actually 2017 for the first time, now 2018, the biggest single risk in the next 10 years is extreme weather events. And of the top five in terms of impact, they're all related to disasters, weather events, climate change, those kind of things. The only thing that is had, would have more impact is nuclear war, which we hope doesn't happen. But well, let's not get into that one. Um, but I mean, it's being recognized by the global economic community and others uh, that we do have to take actions on these things. The unfortunate thing in the report accompanying that assessment by the World Economic Forum was their statement that although the Paris Agreement is very promising, got all the right words in it, uh, their assessment of the likelihood of this happening is that it's very unlikely that it will actually be achieved, which is something we have to address. And even if we can't achieve it, we've got to come close to it. And that means we have to collectively push on our governments to not talk about things, but to actually do things. 
You did hear right. Gordon did say nuclear war and disasters, including those related to extreme weather events and climate change, in the same sentence. And so basically what he's saying is that the only event that poses a greater risk to humanity than nuclear war are disasters, including climate change. If you grew up through the Cold War era like I did, nuclear war felt like a very real threat. There isn't the daily pressure that there was several decades ago. But climate change is real. Climate change is happening. But what is it about the potential disaster that is climate change and all of the extreme weather events that it brings that allows us to remain so utterly unmoved, carrying on in our lives as if nothing is approaching us? I mean, if we're not going to meet the Paris Agreement targets of no more than a two degrees Celsius temperature rise above pre-industrial levels, well, what is the most likely scenario? Maybe it's not that bad? What does the future climate look like? And what does it mean for us? Yes, well, the realistic warming for the next 50 years, taking sensely, is that we are going to pass one and a half degrees C within the next by say 2050, 2060, 70. Uh, the big issue is to try and work hard so that we don't pass two degrees C by 2100. And I think that's unfortunately unlikely, but that doesn't mean we should then just give up and walk away. We've got to keep working on it. Even if we stop it at two and a half or three is better than letting it go to six or seven or five. If we are able to hold it at two degrees C, which is probably unlikely, but let's say that we can or just over that, the reality is we're also going to have to expect not just the mean level changing, but we will have, for example, the number of hot days, which we normally define in Canada as 30 degrees Celsius, whereas we might have once one every that really hot day once in 20 years, whatever it is. That could happen every three to four years. So we're talking about a six-fold increase in the number of hot days. We're talking about a doubling of the number of heavy precipitation events with the risks of flooding. The Associated with that extra energy in the atmosphere, the risks of tornadoes and hailstorms also goes up. It's harder for us as scientists to say how much that is, but that's probably going to happen. Sea level rise, we're looking at close to perhaps a meter of sea level rise. But we also have to keep in mind that there is a uncertain risk here of the nonlinear melting, runaway melting of the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets. And that's harder to say. I mean, the, I think it's a risk we need to look at better. I mean, I think it's, you know, and then you're talking about if you melt all the Antarctic ice sheet, sorry, the, the Greenland ice sheet, uh, you're talking about five, six meters of sea level rise, which makes Prince Edward Island, a uh, whole bunch of them, wipes out oh, well, Vancouver's Richmond area. Well, anyway, you can see, imagine what sea level rise will do. Um, so we need to work uh, and think that, you know, the climate of the future is going to be warmer, sea level rise higher, but more extreme events relative to what we're used to, which means we have to re reduce our vulnerability and exposure to those extreme weather events, the disasters, those kind of things, the effects on our health. So we need to look at how we can change our, let's say, urban living environment, our 
And the other reality, of course, is around the world, the number of people living in cities is going up and up and up because uh, related in a lot of ways to climate change and its direct and indirect impacts is involuntary migration of people. And these are issues that then can lead to civil unrest and all kinds of things. So it's not just a simple you know, issue off to the side. These issues collectively of climate disasters, but also economics and social vulnerability, they need to be brought together in a more cohesive, understanding way, uh, not by not one issue at a time, but let's deal with them more collectively in a more positive way and saying, we're going to do these things and actually do them. Oh, Gordon talks a lot about preparedness, about decreasing vulnerability. And in talking to Gordon and presenting information like this to you, my motivation is certainly to not traumatize, but to present possibilities. And in order to do that, we have to face what is happening and what exactly it is we need to be prepared for. So two degrees Celsius, which is what we are looking at, at least, means that we have to be prepared for more extreme weather, more extreme weather events, which means we have to be a lot more conscientious about where and how we build our homes and networks. It means some national migration. A one-meter sea level rise would impact all of our coastal communities. It would certainly mean preparing for some international migration from less resilient nations around the world, as sea level rise and storms increasingly cause devastations in areas more prone to disasters. As Gordon said, the scientific community cannot answer the question of just how warm it needs to get before the Antarctic and Greenland ice sheets melt. And we would be facing sea level rise significantly more than one meter if that happens. Maybe we're there already, or it might be many degrees in the future. But if we start to face what two degrees means, because we know that is what is happening in terms of how we live and how we plan our cities, then we can be in a much better position to face whatever future scenarios rise. This is what we're talking about now, globally, adapting to climate change. And I asked Gordon to comment on this, on the balance between governments putting energy, money, time into climate change mitigation versus climate change adaptation. And he had this to say. We also, as we've said, have to start focusing on our issues on adapting and bring these two together in a more, let's say, consolidated kind of approach so that we uh, we recognize that in adapting, we don't want to do things that louse up mitigation and vice versa. And we find that, unfortunately, with a lot of the agreements, uh, if I can go off on my usual tangent, uh, we talk about the Paris Agreement, but there's also the Sendai Framework for Action on Disaster Risk Reduction, which talks about how we reduce our vulnerability, our exposure, increase our resilience to extreme weather events, which are climate. In fact, the reality is that most of the increasing numbers of, of hazardous events are climate related. When earthquakes happen, they're horrific, but fortunately, they're not happening large, any more often now than they were 30 years ago. The other point we have to recognize is governments agreed on the sustainable development goals. There are 17 of them with 169 targets. Well, this gets pretty complicated. And the unfortunate reality again there is if we focus on, and I'm just picking numbers arbitrarily out of the air, if we focus on solving one, we may do, and only focus on that one, we may do it in a way that screws up numbers 2, 6, and 15, for example. 
So it's we need to have a more integrated across these issues approach to not just dealing with climate change as the only issue and it's an horrific issue, but dealing with it in the context of these other issues that we're also trying to address. And looking into which government body in Canada holds responsibility for climate change, it's not really clear. Not really clear where the responsibility does lie for helping to keep us informed of what we need to do as citizens, for helping to prepare our nation to adapt. And in talking to Gordon previously, I understand that this is the case, that responsibility for various aspects are divided between different departments. So can we rely on the varying political agendas to get it together in the timescale that we need to to be responding, which really is now? Or does the answer lie more in working within our own municipalities? It's very important for local municipalities to take some action at their local level in terms of uh, disaster risk reduction, floodplain management, taking actions with homeowners and home builders so that when we build our communities and rebuild them, and there's a lot of rebuilding being done, so there's a real opportunity now to rebuild our communities in a way that are more environmentally friendly in the broad sense of that word. The reality, though, is that most municipalities don't have the resources of either people or dollars or quite the same level of, let's say, control of, of regulations that our provinces and federal government have. And so what we need is a multi-level government system of working together across the country, as is often the case, you know, the government's put in place now a a committee on disaster, well, let's say climate change, adaptation, resilience. But let's have more than a committee talking about it. Let's actually have some action and get people involved and make it an issue. Well, certainly the picture that Gordon is painting is that in Canada, a lot more action needs to happen on a federal level. But what about science and technology? Are there technologies out there that could draw carbon out of the atmosphere and help to solve this problem for us? Well, there are some answers in technology, and I, I don't want to in any way discourage technological development because I think there's we should encourage it, but we should not rely on that some um, piece of technology will necessarily solve all problems so we don't have to do anything ourselves. I think it's important that we... We look at this in a more collective, integrated way. Uh, we have to encourage the technological developments uh, because there are some real opportunities of doing things. can't be the only thing we rely on. Technology is important, but also all kinds of uh, social, cultural, other kinds of things are very important. And that's one aspect that I'm going to be exploring some more. What are the technological inventions and interventions that are out there that we could be embracing? McGordon also talks about the other things that are important, the social and the cultural initiatives. How can we motivate ourselves and each other to take action in whatever small or large way that we can? How do we make this issue a felt one instead of one that exists only in the head? Does the answer lie in science, helping people to understand the impacts of this issue on their lives? Will that help to make it more real for us? Yes, I think we need to uh, 
not try and terrify <laughs> the general population, but work with them and communicate. And uh, I think the role of scientists needs to to be including the, the necessity of speaking out and particularly uh, speaking out particularly forcefully when there are certain people still denying it or not wanting to speak about it or saying it'll just hope it'll go away. You know, I have a lot of conversations with people on this subject. And like I said, there are a lot of people that really are engaged and that really are affected and that really do care. But for the most part, in the way that we live our day-to-day lives, we stay relatively separate from these issues. And maybe I don't blame us. It's hard to carry on living and being present and joyful in life while running a program of trauma and dread and fear. I get it. But why is it that we seem so buffered from this potential catastrophe? Two of my colleagues, both who happen to be now at the University of Waterloo, wrote an article which was published in the Globe and Mail newspaper. And they had done a survey. They were looking at flood management. And that's where they also, again, emphasized the need for national leadership on taking action on floodplain management. And the reality is, according to, again, in this case, a paper by one of my graduate students, that basically under Canadian law, uh, a if your house is flooded, you can't sue the city, the municipality, whatever level of government's involved in this, for their the fact they never told you you were in a floodplain. They can't. You can't be give. They have no liability for lack of actions on flood prevention. You can sue them, or they are liable if if they don't save you after the flood has happened and get in there with a boat and pull you out from almost drowning. But by this time, you've lost all your valued assets and perhaps even your children, which is even worse. So uh, we need this kind of action and things. But the point is, made, is noted, and I can't remember the numbers exactly, but I think it was one, only one third of Canadians even knew what a, the, the, the even thought of asking, are I, is my house in a floodplain? And a quarter of the Canadians, when asked, would you take out flood insurance if it was available? And it's now becoming available where it wasn't a while ago. And only a quarter of them said, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd, I would get flood insurance. The rest just said, oh, no, that's not an issue for me. Well, it is an issue for you. It's an issue for all of us. And so there you have it, another opportunity to take responsibility for where you're living, where you're building. And where do you access these resources in Canada? It's the conservation authorities in Ontario that have the legal mandate to ensure that development does not occur in areas that are susceptible to flooding, erosion, and they're the ones that prepare the floodplain maps. In the States, there's a publicly accessible flood map service centre. NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, has produced a sea level rise viewer, a national map where you can look at the different climate scenarios and how they will affect sea level in coastal zones between now and 2100. These scenarios could easily be extrapolated to Pacific and Atlantic Canada. So certainly there seems to be more and more public services available to help potential homeowners become more aware of where they're building. And it sounds like from what Gordon said, awareness is very important because if you end up with your home in the wrong place and disaster strikes, Your local municipality may or may not take any responsibility for that.
curious to know if there are cities in the world where they're getting this right. And so I asked Gordon, with his experience in the Future Earth Research Program, where are the green cities? Is there somewhere that can serve as a model for the rest of us? What does the city of the future look like? Well, this is a really challenging question because I don't know exactly what they're going to look like. I think they will all not necessarily look alike. I think we need to have an adaptability of different concepts and different approaches. There's different issues of culture and society so that these need to be addressed in, so that we don't have a single model for the, the green city of the future, but they need to be greener all over. They need to be uh, more community orientated, less, well, perhaps a little more compact so we don't need quite so much transportation. Um, as, you know, the reality is that in Canada, our cities are huge geographically. The city of Calgary, I'm told, is a geographically much bigger than the city of Paris, even though its population is a tenth of it. There are some communities. Uh, often more often at the local level i mean for example uh, california has been quite uh, supportive of actions on these kind of things at the state level in the united states uh, in terms of uh, reducing emissions per capita and that kind of thing countries in the scandinavians particularly you know like norway sweden uh, denmark uh, they have lower emissions per capita than we do by quite a bit so, Canadians, what is our per capita carbon emissions? Well, it's pretty bad. We are amongst the highest in the world, three to four times higher than the global average. And so where do we look for inspiration? Well, as Gordon mentioned, a lot of these cities lie in Scandinavia and Northern Europe. Copenhagen, Amsterdam, Oslo, Helsinki are always ranked amongst the greenest cities in the world. So what is it that these countries are getting right? Gordon shares a story from his time in Norway. Uh, and yet, even while well, Norway is an oil exporting country, and as I may have told you <laughs> previously, um, you know, some years ago I was at a meeting in, in Oslo and I'm chatting with this guy knowing he was a senior official in their big oil company. And I said, uh, do you guys have a carbon tax? And I knew what the answer was or what should be. And he looked at me and said, yes, Gordon, we have a carbon tax, $50 a ton. This is more than a decade ago he told me this. We've had it since 1990. And I said, well, what do you think about it? And he said, we fully support it. We, that is part of our responsibility. And what is important is that not only have they used that money, uh, they have built up the money, not through just feverishly throwing it away. So in some places where there's been carbon taxes, the money just disappears into nothing. Uh, we need to make sure that when we are making these things like carbon taxes, that they are used to invest in reducing our vulnerability, reducing our greenhouse gas and other environmental impact actions so that they become very much, a, uh, let's say, a tax in the sense you're paying because we should have, as we say in other areas, polluter pays. Well, the polluter pay for Greenhouse gas emissions means if you're going to emit it into the atmosphere, it's having an impact. you got to pay. Sorry, but that's the reality. Pluter pays. And rebuild our communities in a way that brings our people together. 
hear Gordon talk about the broad societal acceptance of carbon tax in Norway makes me a little bit teary-eyed. After the Ontario elections that saw the progressive conservatives gain power in Ontario with Doug Ford at the helm, his plans to do away with the Liberals' cap-and-trade scheme, a scheme that would have seen businesses have a maximum carbon quota set, but the ability to buy additional carbon credits from other businesses that aren't using their full quota. Certainly not a perfect scheme, an all-out carbon tax as they have in Norway is a much fairer and better way to go for the environment, but at least it was something. But as a person who tries to remain positive and see the highest possibility in things, I am hopeful that what Doug Ford and the PCs will do for us is be the perfect mirror for our BS. All the places where it's easiest for all of us to look the other way. To go on business as usual, pretending like nothing is happening, consuming, consuming, consuming. And so maybe under this leadership, we will be confronted by that. We will have to take a look at what we value. And so I asked Gordon for some final words of wisdom for myself and for anyone else that's listening on how to move forward in this reality of a changing climate. Not become overwhelmed and then walk away and say, well, I can't do anything about it. You can do something about it. Let's work together as a team. Let's bring people together in the ways we can take action, make a difference. And the difference will be our communities will be different in 80 years. They'll be different in 30 years. They've been different over the past 30 years. But let's work together so we have the very most positive actions over the next decade so that by the end of this century, the century is one that our children's grandchildren, etc., can make a difference and in, and live a, a reasonable life. Because I think I'm I think we can make it happen. We just have to work together to do it. And so there you have it, the facts from a global climate expert. Carbon dioxide concentrations are being sustained at a higher level in the atmosphere than they have been for millions of years. We are set to reach at least a 2 degrees Celsius temperature rise above pre-industrial levels, and that means change in a lot of ways. But it most certainly doesn't mean that all is lost. There are possibilities out there. There's a lot of them. But you heard it from Gordon. The answers don't lie in science and technology alone, in politicians and leadership alone, in individuals and communities alone. The answers lie in all of those things together and in all of us. And so that's my start into this journey down the road of possibility. Join me as I look to people across Ontario and around the world to talk to me about their view of the highest possibility. And if you take a moment to reflect on what human endeavor has created and imagine if we put all of our creativity and energy and effort into the highest possibilities, just what the outcome could be. Thank you for listening.